Welcome to Thursday Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Jesse Ott, the host of this podcast, which is all about beverage innovation. Our industry is experiencing exponential growth with an outburst of new and innovative brands in an exceedingly difficult three-tiered environment. My first guest, Ben Salisbury, helps these small to mid-sized companies navigate through these difficult times via new methodologies and technologies. He shares his lifelong journey through starting through within the restaurant industry all the way through his exponential growth at Glaciers and Supplier Days, during which he was VP of National Council both St. Michelle Wine Estates and Constellation Brands. These experiences gave him the skill set to start his own company, Salisbury Creative Group, and now through his Wine Sales Stimulator course. We look at books that were and still remain game changers for his career, his mentors, his wish for the wine and spirits industry, ending with his outlook for 2023. Ben was and will always be my favorite boss and mentor. He knows an incredible amount of information in this industry. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everybody. My name is Jesse Ott. Welcome to Thursday Thursdays at 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. My first guest, season one, episode one, is my favorite person in the industry, Ben Salisbury. For any of those of you out there listening that have worked for Ben, you know why he's the best boss ever and mentor throughout your career. So I'm super, super, super pumped, Ben, that you were able to take the time out in your busy schedule to join me on my podcast. So I'm super excited. Thank you for, for, for coming on. Well, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to be your first guest. <laughs> Yay. So Ben and I met, gosh, 10 years ago now, 15 years ago, I guess. Yeah, because you've been yeah, doing Yeah, somewhere 2004-ish, yeah. somewhere like that. Yeah, so we've known each other a long time. And I've seen um, Ben grow through his different career paths with Constellation and then kind of building his own business, which has been very inspiring. Uh, and we, we used to um, meet when he lived in Dallas. We'd meet for breakfast every once in a while just to kind of stay in touch. So it was fun to kind of see how he transitioned over into his current company now. So that's very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we've stayed in touch all these years. It's been a real blessing to me, for sure. Same. So you moved to Ohio, right, recently in the last couple of years? I'm right on the river of Ohio and Kentucky. Okay. So I'm in Covington, Kentucky, northern, far northern Kentucky, my office building sits right on the river and across the river is Cincinnati, Ohio. Nice. I hear there's a lot of really nice restaurants there. It's, it's great. What Brooklyn is to Manhattan, Covington is to Cincinnati. So we're literally separated by the bridge and nice. uh, it's a great area. I love, I love living here. My wife is from here. We've been coming up here for more than 30, 35 years. So we, during the pandemic, we decided to go ahead and make a permanent move here, back to her hometown, where her sisters are and her mom was. So I love it. I love it here. It reminds me of where I grew up in Providence, an old industrial city. You know, parking is really hard and it's a very urban environment, but I love that. Yeah, so you're very much used to the uh, the cold. <laughs> yeah, it's taken some getting used to, especially how much less daylight there is here compared to Texas where it's sunny all the time for 12, 14 hours a day here. The winters are quite dark and cloudy, Yeah, but that's okay. Yeah. I don't mind. Yep. I don't want to be part of the Texas summers that. anymore. Uh, yes. Texas, Texas summers are terrible. We don't want to be around them either. That's why I moved to Florida. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. Agreed. I definitely agreed. 
So tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. Where are you from and kind of how did you get into the industry? Yeah, I've only ever done, I've only ever been in two industries, the restaurant business and then the wine and spirits business. But I grew up in Rhode Island. I grew up in the southern part of the state on the beaches. Um, my family bought a house right on the ocean. That's where I grew up. So I love that. I went to college in Providence. I went to Johnson and Wales. I have two degrees from Johnson and Wales, culinary arts and food service management. And uh, I did my culinary internship at Walt Disney World. I spent two summers at Martha's Vineyard. So in the days that I was in the restaurant business, I had some really great experiences. And I got interested in wine my last two years of college when I was working as a waiter at the Biltmore Plaza Hotel. They had a rooftop restaurant called La Pogée. It's not there anymore. The building's still there. But it was a very fancy French restaurant with tableside cooking and an extensive wine list. And that's when I really started learning about wine. So this would be around 1980, 81, 82 in that area. And then I moved to Houston. I worked with some people at the Biltmore who were headed to Houston. Actually, they were going back to Houston to open a new restaurant there. And I went with them. And I was the front of the house manager, the maitre d'. I bought the wines. I got plugged into the wine wholesale community in Houston. So this would have been 1983, spring of 1983. And that was my last job in the restaurant business because from there I was offered a job by my favorite wine distributor to go work for them, selling to restaurants and package stores. So that was a scary transition because all I'd ever done was worked in restaurants. And I didn't know if a, a career in wine sales was going to suit me or not. Well, it turns out it suited me really well because I loved selling wine to restaurants and I got, I loved getting involved in 60 or 70 different restaurants and package stores. I really loved that job. I was there three and a half years before I was promoted and moved to Dallas. That's how I got to Dallas. I was promoted to on-premise supervisor for the same distributor, but that began my wine career. And, uh, I've, <laughs> I've, I was in Texas all 37 years after that. I never expected to stay in Texas. I wanted to go back to the Northeast, but I just, I never have done it. I didn't know you were, uh, did an internship at Walt Disney. Yeah. Uh, it was a long, it was the winter of 79 and 80. And the, uh, the Ayatollah had all those American hostages. Jimmy Carter was president. It was a long time ago, but Epcot was nothing more than a scale model on a, on a big table. And, Walt Disney World itself had only been open for seven years. So it was a really interesting time to work there and a great experience for me. I loved working for Disney and it, it opened up a lot of great connections for me. It also, and I know you've had this experience, my world expanded when I moved you know, from Rhode Island to Florida and then back to Rhode Island and then to Houston. I, I wasn't afraid to move around and try new things and that is really a great gift, I think. Yeah. I don't sure. understand people who spend their whole lives in the same town where they grew up. I don't, that's kind of foreign to me. I like getting out, doing yep. new things. Well, you're an innovator. Like the, the way you explained, you liked working with different types of restaurants. You could fit different types of the right wines and the right concepts. And, you know, that's kind of like expanding your different um, areas of expertise and, and letting people know what's out there and learning different things. That's for me, I think I've lived in, I don't know, three or four countries, five or six States. I don't know. <laughs> you lose count, but it's fun because it's even, even though each city has its own little microclimate of um, people and diversity and it's really fun. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. 
Well, that brings up a really important point, I think, when I look back on my career. When I left the restaurant business to sell wine to restaurants, I really thought of myself as a restaurant expert, not a wine expert. I wanted to be known as a restaurant expert that happens to sell wine. Like I knew everything about running a restaurant, back of the house, front of the house. And uh, the, the wine business was new to me, but that actually worked to my advantage. I was a restaurant expert who happened to sell wine as opposed to a wine expert who happened to sell to restaurants. And that's made all the difference in my career. And later when I started specializing in chain restaurants, where the level of business acumen and understanding how a restaurant makes money and how they compete, that was far more important than the wine knowledge itself. And so because I had that bend already, I was very oriented to restaurant operations and uh, managing costs, you know, propping up revenue. That helped me be a better wine salesperson. Yeah, My understanding of the sense. restaurant background made a huge difference for me. Yeah, because a lot of people in the distributor probably don't necessarily come from at least that extensive of a restaurant background. No, it's really, you really have to, and I have the most, to this day, the most popular YouTube video on my YouTube channel is the secret to selling wine and spirits on premise, where I, where I talk about, it's really not about the product at all. It's about understanding restaurant operations and how you're, how you as a vendor to them can help them with their business. And so there's a reason that's the most popular YouTube video. It's been viewed like 17,000 times. And, uh, but, but that's it. I come at it as a restaurant expert, not as a wine salesperson. And, and ironically, that's how you sell a lot is not acting like a salesperson. Is it, so, um, hopefully I'm remembering this correctly. You told me how you kind of built up when you were first on the on-premise, you would go into a restaurant and help them do inventory and help them kind of set up their bars and help really kind of be a piece of the, um, you know, heart and soul of the actual business, like really caring and going out and really going the extra step to kind of build that relationship. Yeah, I really think it's a big key to my success. And it's something that I include in my training. So when I'm training wine salespeople, spirit salespeople, I focus on this idea that the sales should be a byproduct of a much larger relationship. And that relationship should be based on service uh, and dependability and trust. So yeah, in the early days of selling wine to restaurants, I understood their pain points. I understood what a pain in the neck it was to take inventory every week. I understood when are the best, when's the best time to go visit with the buyer. Um, funny story. So this would have been 1984. Uh, restaurants were just beginning to adopt electronic cash registers where you could program the menu into the, the micros machine and the waiters could plug in their orders and the, the little chips would print in the kitchen. This was brand new stuff. Well, I was the only person around who knew how to program these uh, electronic cash register. So if you give me the menu and the wine list, I'll program it into your system for you and you'll be good to go. Wow. And so I just started doing this for all of my clients as an extra service. And in return, they would give me big chunks of their by the glass list and the wine menu. So that was a really powerful lesson. You better have something other than good wines and product knowledge in that business relationship. You better bring something of value to the business relationship. And that's a lesson I carried into the chain restaurant world. The 12 years I spent at St. Michelle, we grew, our team grew sales from 50,000 cases a year to 465,000 cases a year. And that's wow. how we did it. We focused on being good business partners and paying attention to pricing and logistics 
the less sexy part of the wine business, but that made all the difference in the world. I learned that it's, that there's dozens of great Chardonnays, hundreds of great Chardonnays. If you go in there just talking about how good your Chardonnay is, you're not going to get very far. But if you go in and show them how you can reduce inventory, improve cash flow, improve guest satisfaction, well, now, now they're going to want to do business with you. Yeah, now you're speaking their language. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very interesting. So um, do you have any mentors as you look back on all those, you know, value added services that you had or any other, um, anybody that really kind of made an impact on your career or, you know, how you thought about your career? Yeah, I love this topic, Jess, because I've had amazing mentors and and in a way of paying it forward, I try to be a mentor to other people. Um, so I've been really fortunate to have amazing, incredible bosses and a few really bad bosses. You learn as much from the bad bosses as you do the good ones. But there are two bosses in particular that really helped me with my career. When I first went to work for Glacius Distributors in their corporate office as their very first on-premise chain guy, my boss was Don Pratt. And Don had worked at Glacius since he got out of college and he... You know, it was a big organization with a lot of, you know, politics and and he helped me navigate all that. He really helped me grow up and mature as a businessman and to how to conduct myself in a meeting, how to be quiet when I had nothing to say, just all kinds of nuances that helped me really mature as a businessman. So I love Don for all the great things he taught me. He was a very disciplined, organized person, and he taught me the value of being disciplined and organized. And then when I went to work for St. Michelle, Glenn Yaffa was my boss all 12 years. And he is, there's probably no, other, no one else that's had a bigger impact on my career than working for Glenn because, and anyone who knows him understands why, but yep. a couple of highlights is he, he stretched me. He expected me to be challenged and he expected me to take risks and make mistakes. That's how you learn. You make mistakes. He gave me a lot of trust to build and to grow and to work things out. He was just a great boss. He did. It was the opposite of being a micromanager. He was an enabler and a teacher. And I really loved him and I wanted to be like him. And uh, he was so organized and he got so much done. So I learned a lot about how to be a, a mature, productive businessman. And then I've had other mentors too. Um, there was a man named Laddie Weiss who's still around. He He's in his 70s. He, he runs the Vibe Conference out in Las and Well, it was in Las Vegas and in California. But when he first left Seagram's in the early 90s, he start, struck out on his own. And he really took me under his wing. He opened doors for me, taught me about the chain restaurant world. And I, for decades, he was an important mentor to me. And he would always meet with me whenever he came to Dallas. He lived in Manhattan. Uh, so he was, I don't think I could live long enough to pay back what he poured into me. So I'm very grateful to him. And yeah, I've had other mentors. When I first started my consulting practice, um, David Comer, who used to be the wine and spirits buyer for TGI Fridays, he by then he had already been his own consultant for a couple of years. And he really took me under his wing and taught me a lot about writing contracts, negotiating contracts, finding clients. He was, he was great. And then lastly, I have a mentor, Right now, her name is Nancy Florence. You can see her at nancyflorence.com. But she's helping me with this new dimension of entrepreneurship and running a business and acting like a CEO, working on my business instead of in my business, but in a more relaxed, fun way and not just 
it's like the opposite of the grind. Anyway, right. ment mentors and being mentored is a big passion of mine because I've had some really, really great ones. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, Glenn Yaffa, he's uh, one of a kind for sure. Yeah, he was such I learned, a great man. I learned so much. And, you know, when I first went to work for him, I was 37 years old, thought I knew everything, you know. And when I left, I was, uh, what is that, 54, 54-ish? No, no, 30, uh, 49. I was 49 when I left. So I grew up a lot, and I learned a lot from him. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the things he, he taught me. Do you stay in touch with him at all? Have you heard from him? I, I've done a terrible job of keeping up with him. When he retired and I started my own business, we just kind of went in yeah. separate directions. But I definitely owe him a call. This conversation is <laughs> making me want to reach out and see how he's doing. Yeah, what a amazing, you know, it was an amazing experience for me to, to when I first started at um, St. Michelle because they were a company at the time that had 100% communication. They had team phone calls. Glenn would email the whole company all the time about different stuff. And it just felt like a really small company, even though it was a pretty decent sized company. Um, the culture there was really, really, really amazing. It was a, it was a great experience working at St. Michelle. Good it was. It was a great time to be there. Yep. Beautiful facilities. Yeah. So, Moving on to resources or key learning tools, is there anything that, um, you know, you recommend um, resources? You've mentioned a coach of yours, life balance. Um, did you make any life balance decisions during your career that kind of really catapulted you? Um, any, any, anything like that that you'd like to share? I know that's a big question for you. <laughs> that's all right. It's a big question, but it's one of my favorites. I mean, I'm a, as you know, uh, you and I are alike in this. We love to learn. We love to innovate. We love to break the mold of convention. We both have that in common. And so I've definitely been a lifelong learner. Um, a couple of big themes, I guess. One is the way things get sold. Uh, I'm a big fan of Daniel Pink. He wrote a book called To Sell as Human. And when I read that book, I felt like I could have written it because it aligned with my philosophy of selling, which is, you know, it's really not about persuasion or overcoming objections or product knowledge or presentation skills. That's not real selling. And so I've been a lifelong student of what real professional selling looks like. And so Daniel Pink's book, To Sell as Human, has been a big influence on me. Uh, Jeff Toole's book, Mastering the Complex Sale, and his quote that a sale should be a byproduct of a much larger relationship. Those things have really shaped how I sell, how I train people to sell, how I look for people to hire to sell. So being a real student of professional salesmanship has been a thing for me. And those books have helped. And my newest book is um, Unreceptive, which is kind of takes all of this to this next level. In this world where there's a lot of noise and buyers can go get their own information and sellers are almost superfluous to the selling process, you better have, you better have some other way to bring value to the table to open the doors and get people to be receptive. So I just really love all of those things. And then another big theme for me is just, you know, time management and being effective. And so Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits was a life changer for me. And then Tim Ferriss's The Four Hour Workweek was incredibly life changing. And I still go back to that a lot. 
in the corporate world, especially, we tend to get caught up in the activity wheel, the hamster wheel of activity. And we tend to think that activity equals achievement and it does not. Results yep. equal achievement. So having the discipline to avoid low value activities and to leverage the 80-20 rule. These are all kind of next level mature um, business person type things that I've really thrown myself into. So I'm always recommending those body of books. But there's one other one other book, and I, I know you've seen it on my desk, but uh, yep. <laughs> The Complete yep. Guide to Accelerating Salesforce Performance. When I, at, at midway through my career at St. Michelle, we could not get our sales to go much higher, had an amazing team, but we just couldn't get it to grow higher. And it's because we were calling on too many accounts and we weren't being selective in how we spent our time and which customers we were calling on. So that book really taught me the discipline of segmentation and understanding that not all accounts are equal, they're not all equal of cap or capable of the, the types of volume that we need. I also learned from that book how important volume is in the wine business and that you have to understand what, what's the key driver of the business. And the wine business, that's volume because you're tied to the fruit that's growing in the field. And if you don't sell it all, it's highly perishable. You can't afford to get back to vintage. So you have to rearrange your life as a salesperson to make sure you're hitting your volume goals because it's the most important driver of the business. But so that level of maturity uh, is what I got from that, from that book, along with some others. I remember um, when I used to work with you and I don't remember if it was one of our sessions where we'd brainstorm, which was really fun, by the way, um, or if it was just in passing or talking to your team or, or one of our trainings, the on-premise training for um, the territory optimization that we built is, um, you know, people don't think about wineries as being an, it's an agriculture right? They have, they have lots of fields, lots of vines. They have a lot of people attending to the grapes and this, that, and the other. There's a lot more involved in, you know, that 12 bottle, $12 bottle of wine that you're buying. You know, you don't think of, oh, it's, you know, grapes, it's agriculture. You don't really think of it that way. It's a different, it's a different um, setup than spirits, right? Because you typically you buy the grain, you buy it here from everywhere. You don't necessarily own the land. You don't necessarily own the vines and take care of it. So it's a really a different business model when you think about it the the fixed cost is a lot higher in wine i mean you can also buy grapes and and do that too but a lot of the bigger wineries they don't they they own their own land yes you're so uh, you're so uh, accurate in that it's a capital intensive business and a lot of people that are running around the wine industry whether they're on the production side or the sales and marketing side they tend to focus way too much on the product itself and they don't really understand the business of wine, like the importance of, of, you know, not tying up too much money in inventory and the importance of moving through the inventory in a timely manner. There's a lot of business acumen that goes with the industry that is sorely lacking for a lot of people because they're just so focused on the product itself and wine, especially like you mentioned, I mean, it's different every year because you have a different vintage. It's highly perishable. And inventory is very, very costly. You cannot afford to have overlapping vintages in your inventory. So uh, it's not enough to just have product knowledge. You really have to understand the business of, of wine. So what do you think are the biggest pain points that the industry is facing today? From your point of view? Well, there's clients? one. Yeah. <laughs> I love this topic too. Well, there's one really big one, and that is the uh, proliferation of brands, which is 
often gets very underestimated just how many brands there are out there now, yeah. coinciding with the massive consolidation of the wholesaler network. Yeah. The big are getting bigger and the smaller shrinking. And what, ha what this sets up is a very unworkable situation where the days of a distributor being able to go out and build sales and distribution for a winery, those days are gone because they're just very overwhelmed with the number of brands. The ratio of brands to salespeople is completely out of control. And so if you're not adjusting yourself accordingly, you're going to experience a lot of pain. And my, my consulting business is built on this. I'm also constantly on the lookout for people who are in enough pain where they're ready to, to get some help, which is the, you know, the basis of a consulting business. But many people are running around as if nothing has changed and really things have changed a lot in the last six, seven years in terms of the number of brands available and the distributors uh, inability to do what they used to do. So I'm always saying a lot of what used to work no longer works or doesn't work as well. And most people are missing that reality. I would say, I don't know, 70, 80 percent of people. And here's the evidence. When you go to winejobs.com and you read the description of a district sales manager or a regional vice president or a national sales manager, you'll see bullets about managing the distributor, working with the distributor, motivating the distributor, all these things that do not work anymore. Every once in a while, you run into a job description where it's pretty clear the supplier understands if, if it's important to them, they're going to have to do it themselves. So this is a big pain point. There's too many brands, too few distributors. And it means people need to adjust, but I see very little adjusting going on. And that's what I try to provide. My team and I, we try to provide the alternative to relying too much on the distributor. So that's one big um, pain point that's going on. Another, and tucked into that is this idea that um, you need to be able to scale. I mean, as a business owner who's striving to work less and make more, I've really tapped into this idea of creating things that are scalable. Anything that requires a physical presence of a human being isn't scalable. So in-store tastings, wine dinners, work withs, um, meetings, face-to-face -face meetings, these are just not very scalable. But our industry is very married to that way of, of selling, kneecap to kneecap, liquid to lips, pulling corks. There's no doubt that is the very best way to sell. It's just not very scalable. So if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that you really can sell without being physically there, but you have to know how to do it. And that requires a lot of learning curve on the digital side. So digital lead generation, uh, the proper use of email marketing, which goes way beyond newsletters and blasts. And, you know, just the whole uh, idea of social selling, using your social media audiences to sell and to connect with buyers and to prospect. These things are uh, really like just lost on a lot of people. They're still doing things the same way. Scheduling work with, with the distributor, scheduling face-to-face -face meetings. Those are things are good, but they just can't be scaled. Yeah. So sense. we are at a, at a crossroads in our industry. We are, there is going to be a separation of people who embrace the digital ways of selling the scalable things that you can do. And those that are s stuck in the past, wondering why their sales aren't, aren't growing. Do you see anything on the digital side that um, looks promising to help scale or any kind of, um, 
you know, I know there's a lot of different technology. I feel, I feel as if almost the restaurants, um, I don't know so much about the retail, but the restaurants, there's a lot of different options and it seems a little fragmented, um, you know, in terms of like the digital side of maybe point of sale networks or, um, inventory, blah, 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 blah. Um, is there anything that you're seeing like out there or maybe just non-restaurant associated that might be, might be a tool to help? Yeah, I really, that's a great question. I really think that uh, prioritizing modern email marketing can be quite transformative for sellers of wine and spirits. When you say email marketing to most people in the wine industry, they're thinking newsletters yep. or some kind of blast where you're sending out a piece of communication to your entire list. Neither of those things are modern email marketing. So imagine you're a small to mid-sized winery. And you have at your disposal an email list of trade buyers, sommeliers, wine buyers, both on and off premise. You have several thousand of those people that you can communicate directly with. Announce a new score, announce a new release, uh, let people know when you're coming to the end of a vintage that's been highly praised and you know, you might wanna grab a six pack before it's all gone. Being able to speak directly to trade buyers through e modern email marketing is incredibly powerful. And then when you combine that with segmentation and automation where somebody comes to your website and they see an email signup form and they see there's a box they can check that says, I'm a member of the trade and you automatically get put into their trade only automated nurture sequence. These are incredibly powerful tools that are 100% scalable great. and very low cost. So this is just one example of what it looks like to transition to a modern way of selling, leveraging technology. A an understanding of what modern email marketing really is. It's not newsletters and blasts. And then B, how to implement it and turn those subscribers into, into customers. So that is really an important thing. And something that goes along with this is understand the customer journey and a sales funnel. <laughs> we really don't have a lot of this in our industry. We think every restaurant out there who doesn't have our wine is a good candidate for us. So, so we must go there and present our wine. Right. Well, this is just not a very smart way to sell by practicing inbound marketing where you're putting out messages and and content that draws people to you and you get them to organically sign up for your email list and then you use expert email marketing to nurture those relationships this is so much uh, more more effective so respecting the customer journey for example if you see a, a a facebook post or an ad or a post on instagram that has a buy now button or shop now button this is kind of foolish because you don't yet have the trust and rapport with that client. You can't sell to a cold audience. So you really have to understand the customer journey, understand how to nurture it. And the beautiful thing is when you do, these are all very, very scalable. So what we're talking about here, Jess, is a whole new learning curve yeah. for the average seller of wines and spirits. At the peak of the pandemic lockdown, I created a lead magnet called the complete guide to selling remotely. How do you sell wine and spirits remotely from your desk? And it was still is the most popular lead magnet that I ever created. Hundreds of people wanted to get their hands on that. And I grew my email list significantly. It really helped my consulting business because now I have a, an audience of self-qualified people who might be interested in my in my services. So this is this idea of inbound marketing based on content creation backed up with automated email marketing. It's a game changer. So the average person out there with a territory, like let's say your territory is the state of Texas and you're in charge of selling wine or spirits in Texas, 
that's a lot of ground to cover. You ought to be employing some of these more digital, modern ways of selling because it could transform your business and you won't be so worn out at the end of the week, running around confusing activity with achievement. Yeah, that's really awesome. Do you see with, I like this trade marketing um, idea of bringing people to the winery website as a trade. That is really, really smart. Do you see the distributors as a way of helping kind of get them to that, to kind of be, um, to kind of help facilitate some of those relationships or is that sort of not something that, I mean, they, they're so busy that I'm sure that it's not something that's on their mind, <laughs> but I'm just wondering how, yeah. how do you at scale, like try to facilitate getting those people on those websites? Yeah, this is a, this is an important topic too. Well, I, and I get, sometimes I get a little blowback for saying this, but I'm going to keep repeating it because it's true. Um, there's really only three things you can expect from a distributor. If you have expectations outside of those three things, you're going to be really disappointed. Number one is have them hold uh, product in their warehouse, you know, inventory of your products in their warehouse. Number two is to deliver it to the accounts that you and your team have sold. You can't have an expectation that they're going to go out and sell new distribution. And the third thing is to potentially match your team's selling efforts. So expecting a distributor to help you grow your trade on the email list, not going to happen. Expecting your distributor to go build new distribution, not going to happen. So the, the antidote is to reach out to these trade buyers directly using social media and using SEO on your website. So if you know who you're targeting and you get the messaging right, you can draw those people to you. You can always tell one of my clients because when you get to their website, there's a pop-up email that allows you to say that you are a trade buyer when you join the email list and you automatically are subscribed to their trade only email list and you automatically get a nurture sequence of emails that just give value, give value. This is another piece. You can't, you can't always be selling all the time. You should be giving, giving value. So yeah. it is powerful, but it's a very, very big paradigm shift. And long answer to your question about whether or not distributors can help facilitate this. They cannot, they're just way too, way too busy. Yeah stretch really thin. Yeah. Especially as they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, one of the shifts that I've seen, um, you know, I had, um, I had lunch with Jane Degler in, in Dallas before Christmas and, um, what they're, what we built, you know, with the territory optimization countless and whatnot is they've shifted their roles and now they actually have people within the distributor working just for St. Michelle. I think she said she had like around 11 people. So that's a big shift that, um, you know, 10 years ago was a thing. I know for, I, I thought it was more on the um, executive level, a little bit higher up level, but it sounds like it's shifted all the way down um, throughout the entire kind of organization. Do you, have you seen a lot of that? Well, the only and, place you're going to see that is for the really big suppliers. Yeah. The, the vast majority of suppliers do not have that. They're totally on their own. And all they can really expect is the logistics, the delivery. So, but once you get to that place and then you can begin the work of building your own distribution, which starts with leveraging 80, 20, you, you can't be everywhere. So you better be really selective about where you do focus your, your energy. And with tools like CRM, you can do a little research to identify the, the richest targets, put them in CRM, begin collecting information about the cast of characters in each account. 
you can log your all of your activities and this really helps you be more more effective selling at scale but also just converting a lot more prospects to buyers so that's a technology solution there to understanding how to use crm which is still very much underutilized in the wine spirits business um and it's just it'll take time for people yeah. to uh, to understand So would you say that's kind of part of the solve of some of the issues that are um, happening out there? And we've kind of talked about a lot of the pain points. So the trade marketing and different things like that, you feel like are some of the ways we can kind of shift the paradigm, so to speak. Is there anything else that you're you're working on or thinking about to kind of help that? Yeah, I think this, the first step is getting people to acknowledge that what they're doing is not as effective as it used to be but they don't typically know what else to do. So we try to be the person who helps them see, open their eyes to these new ways of doing things. So we have a, our new membership program called Wine Sales Stimulator. Our members, this is what they get. Our members sign up because they're like, okay, I'm ready to learn the new modern tech-driven ways of selling. And so when once we have them to that point, we can begin to train them. So there's a big learning curve and there's a lot of training. You have to learn how to use social media to be a social seller. You need to learn how to use modern email marketing. You need to understand inbound marketing and content creation. And these, these things are very foreign and very new for a lot of people in the wine industry. So what is driving people to want to do it, though, is not being happy with their current sales or being frustrated with their distributor. So it only took us nine years, but I feel like we're well positioned to to take those unhappy people and show them how to get happy by employing these new and modern ways of doing things. So that's pretty exciting and very gratifying. Yeah, definitely. So what is your outlook for the industry in 2023? I know there's, you know, there's been a lot of talk back and forth. Are we in a recession? Are we going to be? Is that happening? You know, there's a survey out every day about what, what, what's happening. And certainly there's always a risk, but where do you, where do you see the industry? Is it staying healthy? Yeah, I love this question. Yeah, well, I think that uh, the growth that the wine industry has enjoyed over the past few decades, that's going to slow dramatically, of course. You already, you already see that. And at the same time, there's a lot more competition than there used to be. So, so if you want to win, you've got to really up your game. And a lot of that involves technology. So you have to be open to new ideas, open to new ways of thinking. You got to go back to school on, on a number of fronts to learn how to do this. But it's like a lot of things. There's For those who are willing to learn and grow and adapt, they're going to be just fine. They'll be picking up market share right and left. Those that are working out of an old playbook, like relying too much on the distributor or relying on face-to-face -face selling, they're going to continue to fall behind and get left behind. So it really is about the mindset of, regardless of what the economy is like or the industry is like, if you want to double or triple your sales in 2023, totally can do that. But just going to require some new, some new thinking and some new skills. And so to me, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. is to be part of the group of small group of people who's helping the mid-sized to small producers learn to box above their weight class by leveraging technology 
and go generate their own demand and not have to rely on other people to do that. I think that's really important. And so this feeds into other big trends that I see. Um, content marketing, uh, moving from outbound uh, marketing to inbound, SE, understanding SEO, and now we have AI too, that's shown up in a really big way with chat GPT and people are, people's awareness and understanding of how you can draw these trade buyers and consumers to you if you understand how to give them what they want this um, content marketing. And on this topic, I left out this, this other book. I highly recommend any wine or spirits brand who hasn't read Building a Story Brand to get this book by Donald Miller because it's quite a game changer. But it's not enough to have a website anymore. It's not enough to have a sales team and, a, and brochures and all the collateral that you need to sell. Your messaging needs to be, to cut through the clutter of this intense competition, your messaging, messaging needs to be on point, which is focused on the customer as the hero of the story. So if your customers are restaurants, how do we make the restaurant buyer the hero of the story, not your brand? And you, the role you play in the story as a brand owner or a brand seller is you're merely a guide that helps the customer get what they want. But this is an exciting trend too, and you see it. Uh, really getting traction in a lot of areas because Donald Miller wrote that book, not just for the wine industry, but for all industries, but the savvy people who are in the wine business who are picking it up and implementing it are seeing the power of it. When you get yourself out of the hero seat and you put the customer in it and you start serving them, uh, your sales are going to, are going to really grow. So this shows up on your website, shows up in your social media feeds, shows up in your email marketing. And that book shows you exactly how to do it. So I love that big trend. Customer as the hero, not the brand or the product. Yeah, that's powerful. That's very interesting. You know, <clears throat> sometimes that's kind of hard when you're trying to create, you know, this passionate product project that you have or brand or whatever. It's kind of hard to flip the switch and really realize that, um, yeah, the hero is definitely the person that you want to enjoy it as much as you've made it and created it. And so it's kind of a mindset shift. So it's definitely really interesting. Yeah, it's very subtle, That's but yeah. powerful. Yeah. Um, I met with someone yesterday who wanted me to look at their website to see if they couldn't incorporate some of this. You know, how do we make, how do you take my current brand and my current website and put this nuance in there where the customer is the hero? Well, it's like when you first visit the website, what you want to see are people just like your ideal customer enjoying themselves at your winery or enjoying your wines at home with their friends and family. They want to see themselves in the story. Same thing with social media. So it doesn't really cost a lot to make the switch to put in the customer as hero, but it's incredibly powerful when you do it. And the more examples we can show people of what that looks like in the wine business, the easier it is for, for people to adapt. So <laughs> Well, we could have a whole conversation about web modern website design <laughs> yeah. for wineries because they're very, very lacking. They really don't understand the purpose of a website and how to uh, how to turn it into a you know wine selling machine or a spirit selling machine. So it's exciting. It's an exciting frontier to go help people make those shifts. Yeah, definitely. You know this this podcast is all about beverage innovation, Ben, and I think you hit basically every point um, on how to innovate your brand and how to get into the next, you know, twenty twenty three and beyond. So I really appreciate 
you know, all your insight and um, all your key learnings and, and, and what you can bring to the, to the audience. Is there, is there anything else that um, we haven't said that you want to say that I didn't ask or anything? To um, maybe just up? one thing. And this is, yeah, this is kind of like my wish for the wine of spirits business. Okay. I, I know like it. that it's, I know that it's hard to not focus on the product. You know, you just released a new, um, bourbon that's been in the barrel for years and you're super excited about it and you want to talk about it, that's fine. The problem is having a great product is no longer enough. It really just gets you to the starting line. So no matter how many awards you've won or how great the wine is or spirit is, it still just gets you to the starting line. You better have something else of value. So my wish for the industry is to balance the product focus and product knowledge with more solid business acumen. And this is about empathy, which you'll find in Daniel Pink's book, To Sell a Seaman. Empathy is much more important being successful in sales than product knowledge. I have a video that says, uh, that's called, uh, Business Acumen Eats Wine Knowledge for Breakfast. And I just really think that is the, that's the future, you know? So that's my wish for the industry to balance, balance the knowledge and passion for the product itself with some really solid business acumen and concepts like inbound marketing and things that are scalable and leveraging technology. Because uh, people who balance that out are going to be a lot more successful than people who don't. Yeah, definitely agreed. Well, Ben, this has been really fun. I uh, will have to do this at least once a year, keep in touch and see how you're doing. That would be awesome. Thank you. Are. so. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it too. So where can they reach you if someone wanted to, um, you know, check out your service? Yeah, the best place to reach me is my new website, winesalesstimulator.com. That's the best way to reach me. I have access to tons of free content, more than 70 articles, 80 videos, a lot of great free content, which is how I like to market my business. But winesalesstimulator.com is the best way. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find there that I'm, I'm in there all the time. So I return emails and, um, I return direct messages. So that would be the best way to reach me. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. LinkedIn's a pretty great resource of information and content. I know you've, you've definitely are really good at sharing articles, uh, and information as well. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I enjoy it. Well, best of luck to you, Ben, in 2023. Thank you again for being, you know, season one, episode one. I wouldn't have asked, I wouldn't have, I couldn't have asked anybody else in the world to do it. So thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm very honored and I had a great time. So good luck to you and your new podcast. I'll certainly be a big fan. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. okay. Bye. Next Thursday, I am on location at Ailstone Brewing, located in historic downtown Longwood, Florida. I meet with the owner, Sky Conley, and his event coordinator and marketing manager, Oscar Bowen. Sky is known for opening the first brewery in Seminole County, Florida, and is known for his high quality seasonal brews with eclectic flavors. Sky is a real beverage innovator.